0: You know, it's interesting, we, we, we sing those words and we find ourselves at church on an Easter Sunday. I'm always amazed at Easter. To me, Easter is one of those one of those days that somehow we've made room in our lives. Easter's kind of funny because it makes this place in most of our hearts where a lot of us decide this particular day that we might realign the trajectory of our life. Somehow Easter becomes that one moment in life in the calendar that we have, that all of us take a moment and say, okay, so what's this all about? Oftentimes, Easter's that time in the life of the person who comes to church and says, okay, God, I'll give you one more shot. Maybe that's you today. I don't know. Whatever it is. I know this. The word Easter actually means hope prevails over despair. And the longer I look at that word, Easter, the the more I'm, I'm reminded of the fact that we live in a pretty hopeless world. We live in a world that is looking for hope at every turn in the road. We live in a world that's trying to manufacture hope, that's trying to come up with measures of hope, that's trying to do everything it can to try to create an assemblance of peace, at least if not for just a moment, and I love the fact that Easter gives us permission to kind of stop the train just for a minute and say, Hang on a second, what does this mean for me? And maybe you're here this morning and you're at that place saying, Okay, God, I'll give you one more shot. I'll give you one more moment, one more holiday. Because maybe you find yourself here today at a moment of needing hope. And if that's you, I just want you to know you're among friends, you're completely normal. But I got a message for you today that I think is for you. I've been praying, I've been preparing and believing that God's got answers for some of your biggest questions. So will you join me this morning as we begin and we pray? God, thank you for an opportunity to come before you. Thank you that this message of hope that you give us isn't one that is lost on just a holiday. Lord, thank you that you actually have an answer to our biggest question. The question that cries out, Lord, if you love us, why don't you fix it? I pray that you help us to see hope. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell you a story about someone in the Bible who who made a decision. It's a decision that, that happened in his life when everything was going well. I want to tell you a story about a guy in the Bible who, who is a guy who I respect. Uh, it's, it's just a guy who I like a lot. His name is Peter. Maybe you're familiar with Peter. Peter was one of the disciples who followed Jesus, one of the first disciples, and we'll learn a bit more about him. Uh, I think I like Peter so much is because um, in my mind's eye, you know, when you read your Bible, you kind of get a mental picture of what's going on, and maybe you, maybe you envision some of the disciples and what they might have looked like. Right? In, in my mind's eye, when I, when I envision Peter, here's what I envision Peter, about 6'4", 250, 70 pounds, so, loud, making noise, just kind of just boisterous. You would ever wondered what he thought he just told you? right? That's, you might say to yourself, Lance, how do you know if that's what Peter looked like? And I would tell you, it's my mind's eye. I can decide myself. Right? You read your Bible, you can decide how big Peter is. But my, my mind's eye, Peter's a big dude. Peter's a strong guy. Peter's just boisterous, and you never wondered what Peter thought because Peter just told you. And I think I relate to Peter because I'm verbal. I'm just like he is. That It is not long if you're hanging out with me that I'm going to give you an opinion, right? Or I'm going to give you a direction. I'm going to tell you something. And it's like I just, have you ever been around those people who are just super loud? right? I don't know, right? So let me tell you this. It's kind of funny. My wife and I went to the Mariners game the other night. And The Mariners game, Safeco Field, one of the most beautiful baseball fields around, right? They were, they were beating up on the Rangers. It was awesome. Great game, great night to be there. It was beautiful. No rain, roofs open, everything's awesome. And the loudest man on planet Earth was sitting right behind me. <laughs> it wasn't megaphone guy. It wasn't like Ken Griffey Jr., not that guy. It was just the guy who was super loud. And I'm like, and, and, and I'm, the whole time I'm looking at my wife and I'm like, honey, and she said, Lance, remember you're a Christian? And I'm like, I can't even hear And she's like, and you're a pastor? And I'm like, ha! Ah. So we watched the game. I didn't say anything in Jesus' name. So I don't know. I, I said lots of stuff in my head. Didn't actually make it out of my mouth. So, but, but I'm telling you, right? Those people, I think Peter was like that. In fact, that when, when Jesus found Peter for the very first time, I, it was interesting. He, he was down at the Sea of Galilee. And I got a feeling in my heart that Peter heard, Jesus heard Peter before he saw Peter. Right? I got a feeling that Peter was out on his fishing boat and cleaning the nets or whatever it was he was doing. And Jesus heard Peter. And I got a funny feeling that God just said to Jesus, yep, he's the one. Go tell him to follow you. Now, remember, he's a career fisherman. He fished all his life. He's, he's probably the son of a fisherman and a grandson of a fisherman. I don't know. But when you lived on the Sea of Galilee, you had something to do with the water, right? So I think that was probably a pretty big deal. Pretty Pretty easy to jump that hoop and think that he was... Somehow, the family of Fisher people. In fact, I think Peter was probably as blue collar as they come. My guess that Peter was the lunch pail toting, hard hat wearing, foot up on the bumper kind of guy. I think you could sit down and chew the fat with Peter. I feel like you could just say, yo, brother, and he would just tell you what he's thinking, right? I love Peter because Peter makes me feel comfortable. Right? Maybe, you don't, maybe you're not comfortable around people like us, right? We make the world go round. Kidding. No, I'm telling you, so I, I just I love Peter because he reminds me so much of myself. It's interesting because some of the greatest, most intimate moments happened in the Bible through one of the loudest, most brash people. It's interesting. So, so Jesus one time is talking to his disciples, and he says to them, hey, he gets all, all 12 of them together and he says, Who do you say that I am? And I got a feeling that just before Jesus finished the last sentence, just before he am, as soon as he just finished it up, that Peter blurted out. I know who you are. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God, right? And, and Jesus is like, yeah, man, absolutely. You got it. Way to go. God revealed that to you. And all the other ones are like, yeah, whatever he said. Because I, I just wonder if that was Peter, right? And Peter was just not afraid to just jump out there and say stuff. In fact, another time, Peter was out on the Sea of Galilee with, with the rest of his friends the Bible said there was a raging storm happening at that moment. The sea's going crazy and nuts. It's in the middle of the night. They're trying to cross from one side to the other side, and they're rowing away, doing whatever they're trying to do to get across. And the Bible says that Jesus came walking out on the water by them. Now, it's amazing to me, right? You'd think you'd be like, everyone turn and row the other way, because it's like there's, there's just something you show up on the water. Peter's a fisherman, He knows that's like impossible. You gotta think at some level, Peter's thinking to himself like, what on earth? The Bible actually records that they thought it was a ghost, right? So anyway, they get here, they see Jesus. Peter recognizes it's Jesus. And so what does Peter say? Peter doesn't say, hey, Jesus, come on over here. Peter yells in front of everyone else. He says, Peter, Jesus, if that's you, they ask me to come out to you walking on the water. And Jesus said, all right, come. Peter gets up out of the boat and walks on the water. There was another time when Jesus, James, John, and Peter all go to this mountain together. And while they're up there, there's this moment. And Peter, in all of his brashness, it's this holy moment. God reveals himself to these disciples in a really unique way. Your Bible calls it the Mount of Transfiguration. It's this moment where the, like, heaven opened up and said, this is the real deal. Right? There's this crazy moment. And so Peter, instead of falling on his face and saying like, oh, you really, really, really are who you say you are. Peter just blurts out, you know what? We should build like a monument here. We should build an altar or two just to commemorate this moment. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like Peter. The, or, or the one that we talked about a few weeks ago was when Peter was with the rest of the disciples on the night of the Last Supper, the Bible says Jesus gets up from the table, takes off his robe and wraps it around his waist, this towel, and starts to, to wash the disciples' feet. And as he's washing their feet, he gets to Peter, and Peter says, hey, don't just stop with my feet. Do my head, my hands, my whole body as well. Go ahead, Jesus, give me a bath. Right, just, just blurts it out, right? And there's times when I read my Bible when you just, I have to stop and just listen to the awkward silence in the room. Right, you just gotta imagine all the other disciples just went, what? you're missing the whole story here, right? You see, I love Peter because Peter's just a normal guy. Peter's just a normal guy trying to do life, trying to figure it out, trying to walk with God the best he knows how. This morning, I want to tell you a little bit about Peter, a story that some of you are familiar with. But I want to tell you a story of a time in Peter's life when, when everything was going right? Everything was going as great as they thought it was supposed to go but then something happened. Something happened and Peter crossed the line that he swore he would never cross. Peter made a decision that that that, that altered the trajectory of his life if only for a moment and regret set in and hope was removed. I want to talk to you tonight about a time in Peter's life when at the apex of what was supposed to have happened in his life, this moment where everything was supposed to be right, that at one time in his life he made a decision that he massively regretted and wished he could just take back. Maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. Maybe you find yourself at a place this morning of regret. Maybe you find yourself this morning thinking to yourself, I, I've, I've made fairly good decisions. I've tried to dot all the I's and cross all the T's. I've tried to check all the right boxes. But for, but, but, but for one moment in your life of frustration, of anger, of dissatisfaction, at some point you made a decision and hope left and regret set in. And maybe you find yourself in a similar situation as Peter and you're saying to yourself, I just want to, I just want to for one moment have my hope restored and you don't know how. See, maybe you find yourself living life like Peter. In the story that we're going to talk about this morning, where Peter made a decision and thought it was an irreversible decision. I'm going to tell you this morning that if hope prevails over despair, then hope is attainable again for you. Give you have your Bibles, open it up, if you could, to the book of Mark. The book of Mark. I'm going to read this morning out of the message translation of the Bible. It's kind of, it's kind of a paraphrased version. It just tells the story. So it's not a word-for-word translation, and, and you can read it in the translation you like. But I just want to paint the picture of what it must have felt like for them today. Here we go. In Mark chapter 14, so i set the stage. It was the night of the Last Supper. Jesus is sitting with his disciples. He's explaining to the disciples that he's about to be killed. He's, he's going to be uh, dead for a couple of days, three for, perhaps, and then he was going to be raised on the third day to life, and there's going to be hope restored, so hang in there. Don't give up. I really mean this. We're going to make it, right? And just like Jesus talks to him, to them, he's talking to us, and oftentimes, just like the disciples, it went right over their heads, and they didn't pay attention because they were thinking a little bit more about themselves. Listen to what it says in Mark chapter 14, verse 27. It says, Jesus told them, you're all going to feel that your world is falling apart and that it's all my fault. The scriptures say, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will go helter skelter or they'll scatter. But after I am raised up, I will go ahead of you leading the way to Galilee. Peter blurted out, if everyone else is afraid and ashamed of you, when things all fall to pieces, I won't be. Jesus said, don't be so sure, Peter. Today, this very night, in fact, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He, blur- he, he blurted out, blustered out in protest. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. All others said the same thing. It's funny, isn't it? Peter is absolutely sure of himself. I mean, Peter's with Jesus for the love of heaven. He's with Jesus that night. He's sitting down having dinner with him. And at some moment, there's this crazy cross cross section of of his assurance and and his confidence and and his self-deception that happens. And he says, not me. There's no way. There's no way I'm gonna deny. I don't think Peter was making it up. I I think he felt exactly true. I think Peter was exactly telling the truth as deep in his heart. There is no way I'll deny you. And Jesus' response is, Peter, don't be so sure of yourself. Don't be so sure of yourself. In fact, he goes on, to, goes on to say in the book of Luke chapter 22, in that same scenario, that Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat. And he says this, interestingly enough, he says, but I've prayed that when you fail, that you return and help your brothers. In other words, Jesus is like, Peter, listen, you can deny all you want to that this isn't going to happen, But when you fail, I want you to know something. I'm going to be here for you. You're going to make it. When you blow it, Peter, it doesn't say if you blow it. Or you know what, Pete, you just might be right. He says, when you blow it, I'm going to be here. You're going to make it. See, there's been some times in some of your lives when you've had that, that moment, that dark night of your soul, just like Peter experienced believing with all hope that he's going to do that, and and yet he finds himself. I always find it interesting that at at the least least opportune moment, the people who are the strongest in their fields, the people who find themselves with their finances in order, their health in good shape, their marriages as solid as possible, I always find it interesting to me that those people in that moment, that, that, that at some level we're all susceptible to some sort of a collapse. Every one of us is susceptible to it all just falling apart around us. Oftentimes, it's the result of a decision that we've made, but sometimes it's nothing you've done at all, and it all just seems to collapse around you. And perhaps that's exactly what happened in your world. You find yourself here this morning thinking, I don't know how I got here, and maybe God's going to give you one more moment. You, you think you're going to give God one more moment, and you're here today, and God's saying, listen, I have hope for you. I have hope for you. Man, if I've seen it once, I've seen it a thousand times. Some of the strongest, most confident people find their way with the world collapsing around them. Hmm. I always think it's interesting, this blurred line that we have, the line between self-confidence and self-deception. It's just such a blurry line. I mean, we're raised being, being told that you're the best. You'll, you'll always, you're number one. There's no one better than you, more handsome, more pretty, more this, more that. We're, we're told you're the top of the heap, you're the whatever, And self-confidence and self-deception just find themselves in this blurred moment of confusion. And this is exactly where I think Peter finds himself, where Peter absolutely believes with all of his heart that there's nothing that could shake him from his dedication and love for Jesus. And yet he finds himself in a moment that he never thought he would end up Maybe that's what's happened in your life today. That's what brings you to church today. You're in a place saying, listen, I've got to find some hope. i just got to figure out how to get through this thing. And this, this blurred line between self-confidence and self-deception has left you feeling well. Continually striving after the next event. Continually pursuing the next person, the next job, the next financial goal, the next whatever. And you're always living life a little dissatisfied. And the Lord's saying for you today, it's not about any of that stuff that there is a hope that can prevail over that little bitty despair that resides within your heart and nips at your heels all day long. The Bible says here in, in the book of Luke, the story picks up. Jesus is arrested. And as he's arrested, the Bible says they take him off to the, the high priest's house. And as they're, as they're doing this, the Bible says that, that, that Peter reaches out and he takes a sword. And, and just like he said to Jesus, I will defend you with my life. He takes out a sword and he goes to swing it as if he's going to probably cut somebody's head off, right? And the Bible says he ends up cutting the soldier's ear off, right? I always think it's kind of funny. Like for all eternity, we know this guy who thinks he's just a man's man, goes aiming his sword at somebody, and ends up just cutting his ear off. You're just like, for all eternity, I mean, you didn't like, you know, mortally wound him. You didn't like just cut his arm off. It was like his ear, right? And you think like, thanks, God. Thanks for including that in all of Scripture for all eternity, right? right? But here's what it makes me think. It makes me think that Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't a soldier, that Peter was a fisherman. He gets a hold of the sword and for some reason, I don't know, was he you know, chopping downwards and so he cut his ear off this way? I, I don't know. It probably hit his shoulder then. It's, well, Some people say that, that, that Peter was just swinging violently and as he swung at some level, the soldier dipped his head down and the, the sword just zipped past his ear and took it off. I don't know. It's just kind of a weird thing for me. Jesus ended up healing him. But the message behind that story is that Jesus was really trying to be defended by Peter and Peter was going to say, listen, I'll fight to the end. Until it gets really hard, then I'm going to run. (laughs) listen to what it says. It says here in Luke chapter 22, verse 54. It says, arresting Jesus, they marched off and took him to the house of the chief priest. Peter followed, but at a safe distance. In the middle of the courtyard, some people started a fire and were sitting around it trying to keep warm. One of the serving maids sitting at the fire noticed him. They took him, then took a second, looked at him and said, this man was with him. Peter denied it, woman, I don't even know him. A short time later, someone else noticed him and said, you're one of them. But Peter denied it, man, I am not. About an hour later, someone else spoke up really adamant. He's got to have been with him. He's got Galilean written all over him. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. At that very moment, the last word hardly left his lips when a rooster crowed. Just then, the master turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered what the master said to him. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Then went out and cried and cried and cried. You know, I read that story, and i got to level with you. I've never preached that story on Easter Never talked about that. But it just got me thinking about the life of Peter and what that must have felt like to feel so hopeless. Peter, literally fulfilling the very words that Jesus said would happen, denies even knowing him, not once, but three times. And the last time he denies him, literally as the words are coming out of his mouth, just as soon as they do, the Bible says, the rooster road. And here's what makes matters worse. The older I get, the, the slower I'm learning to read my Bible. I meant that on purpose. The older I get, the, the, the slower I'm trying to, to read my Bible, more deliberate with every word, because every word has meaning. And all too often, we rush past the words of God too fast. And I'm telling you, so, so the Bible says that as the, the, the rooster crowed, the Bible says the words came out of his mouth, the rooster crowed, and then it said that Jesus somehow locked eyes with Peter. It, it makes me wonder what kind of look was it? And I don't know where they were. Jesus was somehow being tried in some sort of a farce trial going on with uh, religious leading folks. We know that. And somehow in, within earshot, obviously, Peter is having this moment warming himself by a fire and, and, and has these conversations where he's denying Jesus. The rooster crows. Jesus hears it. Peter hears it. And they lock eyes at each other. What kind of a look was it? Was it a look of Surprise was it a look of shame did, did 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 Jesus look at Peter and say like I knew you would I knew that you would just not make it Peter I knew you would give up on me was it was it a look of of anger see I told you so I told you you would See, maybe maybe you find yourself today feeling exactly the same that way. You have this big pile of sin between you and God, and you feel like that thing sits between you, and at some level, this great big God in heaven has this big bony finger pointed straight down at you saying, See, I knew you would blow it. I knew you couldn't stay faithful to that marriage. I knew you would cross the line in your finances. I knew you would do that. And we find ourselves thinking this, God, how could a loving God care for me like that and point his finger? What kind of a look do you see from Jesus in your own life? Like oftentimes we think that God has this judgmental, mean, big, bony finger pointed straight down at us. See, I'll level with you. I don't think Jesus was looking, I don't think Jesus was looking at Peter. I think Jesus was looking for Peter. I don't think Jesus is looking at you. I think Jesus is looking looking for you. I don't think he's got a bony finger pointing anywhere. I think he sees your decision. I think he sees your mistake. I think he sees your trial. I think he sees your struggle. And he ain't looking at you saying, see, look what you've done. He's looking for you saying, come on. You don't have to live here anymore. You don't have to be bound up by that decision or the decision that was made on your behalf. You don't have to live under that pressure any longer. He's not looking at you, he's looking for you. He's saying, I come for you. Mm-hmm. Peter went through that night. The Bible says the very next night, Jesus was crucified. Then there was another day and another night. There's a couple of nights that happened in that exchange between the trial and, and that Sunday morning. And it makes me stop and think of what it's like to experience those dark nights. I don't know if it's that way for you, but I know that in my guiltiest moments, those become the darkest nights. And those moments that I feel the most shame, and the moments that I feel the most unworthy, seem to be the longest nights Ever. I wonder if that was the same for Peter. And Peter felt like this night can't get any longer. I want to quit. I want to give up. I want to cash in. I just want to run. I just want to go. I just want to be done with this whole thing. I want to quit my marriage. I want to quit my kids. I want to quit my job. I just want to give up. And maybe that's where you find yourself today and you're in a place of saying, I don't get it. I don't understand how I got here. Things were going so well. I was doing the right things and then it all just collapsed around me. See, that's what I think Peter was experiencing. I think Peter was experiencing hopelessness like, like no other. I think Peter was like, man, I left this fishing thing to come follow him. I, told every, I watched Jesus heal people. I watched him raise him from the dead. I watched Jesus forgive people, and, and, and I watched him forgive me. And, and in that moment, I still find myself dealing with the fact that how could I deny him at his worst place? See, I think Peter understands exactly how you feel. And you find yourself in that same moment of feeling that work, that that, that burden, that pressure. You know, like Peter, feeling hopeless. Peter did what the rest of us would do, try to fix the problem. When we find ourselves in our dark nights of the soul, when we find ourselves in those moments of absolute brokenness, what do we do? We just want to feel better. We just want to do something to try to make ourselves feel just a little better. And oftentimes, they're, they're poor decisions. Oftentimes, we do something we would regret any further. But, but shoot, might as well, Katie, bar the door. I've already blown it once. I might as well just let her rip. And we find ourselves making really crazy decisions. And maybe that's you today. Peter, the Bible says, ripped out a sword from somewhere and starts swinging it a lie. He lies to a girl. And then the Bible says he ends up breaking down and crying and crying and crying, right? Maybe you've never blurted out a bunch of tears. But on the inside, you've cried yourself a few rivers. And you know what it feels like to just feel like at the end of it all, and you don't know what to do. And maybe that's you this morning, and you find yourself completely broken. I love this. I love the fact that God didn't leave us alone to try to fend for ourselves. I love the fact that he gave us room. He gave us an answer. He helped us solve the problem. Look what the Bible says in John chapter 20. It's up on the screen. It says early Sunday morning. Everyone say early Sunday morning. I love this. You guys came to the last service, so clearly early wasn't in your, in your plans, right? So you're the group I like. You, you know, it's funny, early. I always tell, I told the early crowd this morning at 8 o'clock, I was like, you guys got somewhere to go, don't you? They're like, yep, hurry it up. <laughs> I was like, that's funny because we're filling your kids with sugar. You're going to enjoy that for about an hour. No, I'll tell you what. So it's funny because we all get that moment, right? I love the fact that there's an early Sunday morning. You know what I really love more than anything when I read my Bible? is that the, it didn't happen later on in the afternoon. That it wasn't like, hey, later on in the afternoon, as everybody was kind of reclining at the table, Jesus appeared. Didn't happen. That wasn't the way that it was. I mean, Jesus, the Bible says, early Sunday morning, something happened. Some of you need an early Sunday morning moment with God. Some of you need an early morning where you realize, listen, life is not all that bad. There's something in this hope thing for me. Listen to what it says. "Early, Early Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. And she found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and she found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and I don't know where they put him. Peter and the other disciples ran to the tomb to see. The other disciple outran Peter and got there first. Hmm. He stooped and looked in and saw that the linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that covered Jesus' Jesus' head was laying folded up, lying to the side. The other disciple also went in and saw and believed, for until then, they hadn't realized that the scripture said that he would raise from the dead. Then they went home. You know, the... the, The longer I read Scripture, the more it shows stuff to me. You know, you wonder, they they show up at this empty tomb. How is the empty tomb supposed to reflect some sort of hope? You, You know, I don't know if you realize this or not, but we have a sin problem, and the sin problem was supposed to be taken care of by Jesus coming and paying the penalty for our sin by dying on the cross. So why wasn't dying on the cross enough? What was the empty tomb all about? Why do we need an empty grave for this whole thing to be complete? I mean, if perfect Jesus came and lived a sinless life to lay down his life on a cross, why couldn't that be enough? And here's what I would tell you, it is enough. But to, but, but to prove that it was completed, Jesus rose from the dead. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. I love this because Jesus didn't die for his sin, he died for our sin. And to prove that, that he overcame death, hell, and the grave, he rose from the dead So you know what the empty tomb is, don't you? The empty tomb is basically the receipt. It's the big, long receipt that you get at Costco with the big red line on it that says you bought all this stuff. Some of you, it's a big receipt, right? That's what it is. The empty tomb is the receipt saying proof of purchase. It's taken care of, problem solved. The empty tomb is God saying you wanted me to do something, I did. I sent my son to pay the penalty for the big mess that's going on here on planet Earth. The empty tomb is the yes, I will do something. I love that fact that we get this opportunity to read that. Now, now, so picture this with me. The Bible says that they got there to the tomb, and there was this cloth that covered Jesus that was folded up to the side. Now, any other time, you might think to yourself like, yeah, how important is something like that? Well, we know a couple of things when we read our Bibles. First of all, we know that the Roman government didn't want Jesus back alive, because if Jesus was back alive, then there would somehow be this crazy uproar, and people would say, like, oh, my gosh, he actually was who he said he was. Holy cow, this thing is going to be a crazy mess now. So the Romans set guards guarding the tomb so that Jesus wouldn't come out. Right? They said, and by the way, if you ever watch TV and you see shows that kind of show the guards who are watching the tomb? They always show, like, the JV squad. They always show like the junior varsity rookie, you know, guys who are like, whatever, we're here tonight. I don't want to be here. I want to be home. You know, and, and so let me tell you this. They were like special forces. These Roman guards were like for the real deal. They didn't send the junior varsity crowd to guard the rock. So didn't, because let me tell you this. If he came out, mass upheaval would happen in Rome. They didn't. They put the best guys there watching this tomb. They, they, the Bible says they sealed it with whatever they sealed it with. But they sealed the tomb. The Roman government did not want that thing open. There were grave robbers. We knew that it wasn't the Jewish religious leaders, they didn't want that thing open because if they opened it up, then it would prove that they were wrong all along and that Jesus really was the Messiah. They needed that thing staying closed. It wasn't Jesus' disciples, we know that, why? Because we saw how Peter wielded a sword, and then there's no way that he could have fended off a bunch of special forces guys with his vision pole. but we knew that he was terrible at that thing, right? We know that. There's no way he could have gotten that in the moment where two guards falling asleep and we see in the movies and they're just like somehow, the, the, but you guys gotta understand that this rock was enormous. I've been to Israel, I got to go see the tomb. This, this big trough with a rock rolled in it was several tons. I mean, it was enormous, right? And by the way, Jesus was a little dude. I can tell you, I walked into the tomb. Got to see it. But Let me tell you something about that tomb today. It's still empty. Come on. Still empty. And I I went in there and I was like standing like this because I had to bend over because I was going to hit my head. I could see the place where Jesus laid. And I was like, he ain't there. It's crazy watching this thing. I love to be there. Then I grabbed a rock and put it in my pocket. (laughs) Kidding. Just a little bit. They'll tell the authorities. They'll come get me. But nevertheless, right? So there's a moment, right? But it says that there was a cloth laid there that was covering Jesus' body. It was folded. I can promise you this, that if the Romans came to get Jesus, they wouldn't have folded a cloth. <laughs> they just would say like, hang on a second, we're going to finish by folding up this cloth and laying it here, all right? Now we can take him. The, the Jewish religious leaders wouldn't have folded the cloth. They wouldn't want any kind of an indicator whatsoever that it was something done intentional. But Jesus folded a cloth and laid it by his side. Now, now I've heard story after story as to what the meaning behind a folded cloth meant. The one to me that makes the most sense, I heard this morning, believe it or not, it it was this, that that after a Jewish person would go to eat dinner at another Jewish person's house, they would fold their cloth that they were finished eating with in such a way that left a message, right? You know when you're you're done with dinner, if you just crumple up your napkin and throw it on your plate, and you just leave stuff there, you're basically saying, you know, I'm done, be off with it, I'm out of here. But if you folded it up in a certain way and put stuff down in a certain way, you wanted to communicate a message that, I had a great time tonight. This was really good fellowship, and I will be back. I got a funny feeling that when John looked in there, he was like, (laughs) and Peter looked in there. Peter didn't look. Peter ran. Peter went right in. Peter went right in, and he saw it, he's just like, what the, are you kidding me? He got to see the folded cloth. I think the message was clearly received. What got me stumped this week, though, wasn't any of that. I think that was really important. What got me stumped the most this week was, was the, the little joke that every pastor, including me, has said throughout the course of all of our preaching on this passage of Scripture. When it says that the disciple whom Jesus loved ran and got there first and beat Peter to the tomb, and I always laughed and said like, ha, 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 funny, God allowed a little snarky in the Bible, and that was him kind of poking at Peter because you were slow, Peter. You know, let me tell you this. As I read it again and read it again and read it again, I saw a whole different message Let me tell you this, every single word, every single letter, every single comma and period in the Bible matters. See, here's what I think happened. I think early that morning, Peter Peter was awoken from his sleep by Mary Magdalene and whoever was with her, Salome or whoever was yelling, Holy cow, he's up, he's risen from the dead and just went crazy and Peter just jumped up. I think Peter jumped up and he thought to himself, whoa, whoa, hang on a second. John hopped up. That's who we know wrote the Bible. In that book of John, it was John. The Bible says those two got up and take off running, right? And I think Peter, let me tell you this. By the way, let me tell you this. If you're ever a guy who races other people and you always win, I mean, you always win, you don't usually write that down for all eternity because you're the one who wins. You know who writes something in the Bible for all eternity? The guy who's never won except once the guy who brags the most is the guy who never wins but won once (laughs) why did he win see i don't think it's some spurt of energy that john had that he just got himself up faster and ran farther I don't think that at all. In fact, if it were my eyes, and I would tell you this, I think Peter probably left earlier. I think Peter probably took off. I think Peter ran with all of his might. I think Peter realized, this is Jesus, he rose from the dead. Are you kidding me? I gotta see this for myself. And he took off running as he's running and doing everything he possibly can. I think he started to realize to himself, oh, he's alive. I have to face my guilt, my shame, my pain. How can I let him down? What kind of a man am I? Why would I do such a thing? See, guilt and shame will always slow your pace. Guilt, shame, and sin will always slow your pace. I don't care who you are, but it will always slow the gait of your walk. It'll take you from running a full sprint to crawling on your hands and knees. Why? Because you have a 10,000-pound monkey on your back because you can't shake it because it's a decision that you made and you have this guilt and your shame and it's holding you back and it takes your run to a walk and your walk to a crawl. And you find yourself living life never reaching the pace that God intended you to run because you find yourself living towing around this 10,000 pound weight of guilt, shame. See, I think when Peter got to the tomb and he looked in and he saw John there, who got there to Peter didn't matter. Who got there first to Peter didn't matter. What mattered to Peter was what was inside. And Peter saw for himself for the first time hope that was restored. We know the rest of the story that later on they ran into Jesus and Jesus showed up to them. And then later Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, I love you. Asked him three times, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my lambs. We know the restoration of that moment. But in that very moment when Peter looked in and he saw the linen cloth lying there, I got a feeling in my heart that Peter said, there's hope. See Peter left that morning from his house with a glimmer of hope on this hand and about halfway on his trip he he ran right into he ran right into the I doubt it's of life and some of you are right at that cross section of I believe God has hope and I doubt it and they're right at this interchange and they're crossing right here that's exactly where Peter found himself and he ended up in a crawl and got passed by John. I think, of you today are walking as fast as you can, but let me tell you to the rest of the world, it looks like a crawl. Because you crossed the line that you wish you could take back and you can't. There's nothing that you can do to fix it, but there's everything that you can do to fix your future. He brought you to church today because he wants to bring about a hope for you, to remind you the empty tomb wasn't just for Peter, that the empty tomb was for you. Maybe you've met a Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time. This morning I had someone come up to me and said, I've been serving God for a long time, but something happened in my life and I just said, I don't care. And I just threw all caution to the wind and I just decided, you know what? I'm done. I went crazy berserk. And she said, today I realized this message was for me. and I'm here today to tell you the same thing. Maybe you've walked with Jesus for a long time In some moment, a crossroads of your life, you made a decision you never thought was possible. And God's telling you today, hope can be restored because despair has set in. My question for you is, will you let him? Maybe you're here today and for the very first time, you're recognizing the fact that you've never really had a relationship with Jesus. You've never really surrendered all that you are to him. You've heard sermons, you've watched preachers on TV. Like me, you probably laughed with the rest of us. But from a distance, you said, I'll never be like those people. I'm here to tell you you today, you don't need to be like them. You just need to be like you, who's on the right track of hope. And that's by surrendering your life to Jesus. So this morning, I wanna pray for you. On either one of those fronts, I wanna pray for you to find Jesus for the first time, or to rededicate your life to following him. So will you close your eyes and bow your heads with me as we pray? Lord, this morning we come. And God, I pray for my friends today who, who've walked with you, God, who, who've, who've lifted their hands in worship and sang songs of praise and adoration to you, who've been to church services and said, yes, I'll walk with you, Jesus, but crossed the line at some point and felt like they're disqualified themselves from the journey. I don't know who you are this morning, but I'm here to tell you that there's a hope that God wants you to know today for you. I just want you to say, Jesus, I need that hope. I need the Easter in my life. I need you to restore my lost hope. Just tell him, Jesus, restore my hope today that I could find the life that I once knew. It's between you and him. Just tell him that. Maybe this morning, for the very first time, you're realizing that you've never actually surrendered your life to Jesus. You've heard the words, but you've never done it for yourself. And today you're realizing how far you've walked from hope and how much you need it. And if that's you today, I want you to say, Jesus, I need hope. I need hope. Tired of trying to manufacture it on my own. I, I need hope. If that's you and you want to dedicate your life to serving him, surrendering your life to him for the very first time, just say, Jesus, you found me. You've been looking for me and you found me. I surrender to you all that I am. Just tell him, Jesus, I'm yours. I give up. I give you all my sin, all my shame, all my hurt, all my pain. And I ask you to come into my life as I surrender mine completely to yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Happy Easter. That's the message of Easter. It's a message of hope restored. It's a message that Peter didn't leave it there. Peter went on to be the leader, one of the leaders in the church. You can continue reading your Bibles and you see Peter, like like, it wasn't long after this that Peter stands up and starts preaching and thousands of people surrender their life to him, surrender their life to Jesus as a result of him being transformed because he believed the message of hope. What could happen if you did? Listen, today, if you prayed that prayer for the first time or the first time in a long time, find someone with one of those yellow tags on and just say, man, that was me. He was talking about me and let them pray for you and maybe get your phone number and, and and let you know, like there is, there's hope. We can pray for you or get you a Bible or whatever you need for your next journey. Over the next couple of weeks, for the next three weeks, we're going to start a series called of all things next. It's just going to be called next one word. We're going to be talking about what it means to walk this walk with Jesus. And what next steps really look like. So if you want to know, come back the next week and we'll walk you through some of that. Amen. I'm really glad you're with us today. Why don't you stand to your feet if you could. God.